Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're tuned in to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au slash streaming or on demand and podcasted. Thanks to Encyclopedia for the previous hour. I'd firstly like to start by acknowledging I'm broadcasting from the lands of Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. These lands were stolen and colonization is ongoing. Sovereignty was never ceded. I'd like to acknowledge the continual resistance of First Nations people since invasion. I acknowledge any First Nations people tuning in today and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. So today is a packed show for you. It is International Sex Workers' Rights Day. The fight to decriminalise sex work, to end police and state violence and stigma and discrimination of sex workers is ongoing and follow Vixen Collective in Victoria for all the important work they're doing. We'll be hearing more about the origins of this day and current campaigns as part of a wider conversation on the legacy of sociologist, sex worker rights and trans rights activist Roberta Perkins. Stay tuned to hear from sex worker coordinator at Respect in Queensland, Elena Jeffries, and Cameron Cox from the New South Wales Sex Workers Outreach Programme. But first, we'll hear from Nagario artist Peter Waples Crow about his Inside Out exhibition currently on at the Curie Heritage Trust. I have Peter Waples Crow on the line. Thanks for joining me on 3CR Community Radio, Queering the Air. Um, Peter, um, yeah, thanks for having me. Peter is a Nagario artist, public health worker based in Melbourne, and you recently launched an exhibition Inside Out on 4th of May at the Curry Heritage Trust at Federation Square, which is on until July 28th. I was there for a little bit of the launch, and it was really buzzing. Could you tell listeners how the launch was for you? Um, I couldn't have asked for more. It was, yeah, I think, you know, the show looks at the intersection of my identity being um, Narago and queer and um, spans you know, last few years of work and brings it all together. And on the night, it was just the just the combination <laughs> um, was overwhelming. I think it really was a safe, black, clear space, you know, and people really enjoying themselves. So, yeah, look, it was just incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could you... Tell listeners a bit about your art and what what what's there at the Curry Heritage Trust. Okay, so at the Curry Heritage Trust, um, there's fashion. I did a fashion collaboration last year. There's a couple of video screens that give the fashion some context. The pro, it was a project called Recognition, where five Indigenous artists worked with five designers, and I got to work with Vincent Lee, <coughs> who is also a queer. Um, genderless menswear designer so there's a bit of fashion um there's artist books there's some wall prints there's some political posters there's a series of canvases um dingo spirit sculptures um my possum skin cloak which brings together culture and like that i made for an actor show that um was in the time span i was the artist in residence at the Curry heritage trust um for the last year, at working towards this show, um, and yeah, there's a lot of there's something for everyone in that show. So I'd encourage people to get along and see it if you can, and experience the Curry Heritage Trust as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, could you talk about um, the common use of the dingo in your artwork, and also touch on your use of like irony in, it, in your art? Yeah, um, I, I guess I always use lots of, um, yeah, ironic humour, and uh, I've sort of gotten known for that. And um, I use, it just, 
Uh, yeah, I, I like the word autoethnography. So it's like experiences that have come from the everyday. That's the irony of it all. And um, the collision of the LGBTI world, the Aboriginal world, and um, and different. I like working in those two spaces as well over the years. It's really rich fodder for my art. Um, uh, I think I speak to a lot of different audiences. And the dingo, even though in my tribe I'm called Nurin, um, the emu, I really feel a real affinity to the dingo. And I actually use it as a symbol of queerness. In some Aboriginal stories, the dingo is a shapeshifter animal. So, like, we only see it as a dingo in the day and at night it can become any form, which I like the whole idea of, you know, something that's um, being able to shift its form and um, into anything. And I also, it's, the alpine dingo is going extinct, you know, that's the indigo Mm -hmm. of the southeast, there's three species. And um, I'm an alpine person, the Narago country is um, the Snowy Mountains area of New South Wales and comes a bit into Victoria as well. Um, and <coughs> the dingo is often hunted as a pest and not protected very much. So I see it as a second-class native. And as a queer Aboriginal fella, sometimes I've felt I'm not afforded the same protection as my Aboriginal peers. So this whole idea of a second-class native with not the same rights um, and access to things is really... That's why I use the dingo. So when you see the dingo in my work, that's mm. what it's talking about, concepts around that. Um, yeah, and I think that sort of describes what the show's about. Um, yeah, I think life can be full of irony. So it's mm. just a reflection of, my, of of life, really. And just using humour to, you know, to um, take the edge off, I really like doing that. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, what's the significance of the phrase you have on the rain? The rainbow always was, always will be Aboriginal queer mob. What's the significance of that to you, and how you had it all over the exhibition? Well, I was coming up with slogans, and there. The thing is, um, so you know, it's contested being queer and sometimes not belonging in the culture, you know. I think, you know, the issue is that we were raised under the a colonization, our um diversity and all mm. Aboriginal diversity was erased under colonization, you know, our diversity of different mobs and you know, we were over five hundred different groups of people across Australia, but we were all turned into the Aborigines. And I think under that same erasure, which has usually got a Christian lens to it or a religious lens um, our sexualities and gender diversity was probably erased as well. So what I'm trying to do is reinsert it back in the culture now. You know, we've got a vibrant Aboriginal LGBTIQA plus community and some of the I'm taking some of the Aboriginal chants like always was, always will be Aboriginal land and putting queer into that narrative as well. And hmm. I think there's one that says, you know, I'm guess before I came into my Aboriginality later, because I, I was adopted out. So um, mm. it's been quite a journey, and I think the show is a culmination in a lot of ways of that journey. Um, and I came back to Aboriginal culture with a queer identity, and it was really hard. And one of the things someone said to me, oh, you know, um, sort of you're not a real man, or you're not, this, you're not real. So I've used that one of the slogan posters too saying gay Aboriginal men are real Aboriginal mm. men um, and I think I did ones about love as well and the rainbow stripes are the Aboriginal colours Torres Strait Islander colours and the rainbow um, with the black and brown stripe with the pride of the end with the inclusion you know for black and brown people so I've used all those colours as a backdrop for those posters and then plaster them on on a wall um, in the gallery. So it's just queer is beautiful. It's like black is beautiful, queer is beautiful, just subverting um, some of the old slogans that have been used around um, people of colour and Aboriginal people and um, inserting queer into that narrative. So, 
um, mm. that's what I've been doing. Yeah, really powerful affirmations fighting back against that erasure. Um, Nika, Nika Guri wrote in the exhibition booklet that this sort of work is sort of part of a black queer renaissance. How do you see that in terms of how things have changed over your life? Things have changed. Look, I um, grew up in the Waples family. That's why I've got a double barrel name. So the Waples family, they're not an Indigenous family. and They're actually a poor non-Indigenous family and we grew up in housing commission in Western Wollongong in New South Wales. And, um, I had to come to terms with my queerness first. So, um, yeah, from early age I recognised that. But I didn't know how to contextualise and there wasn't many role models. And you didn't hear nice things about being queer. Everything was really negative. And, you know, I grew up in the era where, you know, poofter bashing was a sport. And then the advent of HIV when I was about, that emerged you know, grids and stuff emerged and AIDS and um, the community went really homophobic and sort of, you know, was sort of happy we were contracting a disease or something like that. It was just all I heard was negativity about my identity and um, I think I internalised a lot of that stuff and had internalised homophobia for a long time and I guess um, I've watched things change and then I've had to come into the Aboriginal community um, with that queer identity and had comments like, you're not a real man. and I've stood my ground and um, I've always been inspired by activism anyway. Um, mm. I'm, I think I'm a quiet activist, um, but I've watched things change for the better. And I think even now, you know, we've, we've come into an era where there's a lot of diversity in the rainbow community and that's the diversity we wanted. There wasn't many... All the labels we had back in when I was younger, we were all negative, you know, and there wasn't mm-hmm. as many. It's just, um, as you get older, and yeah, I'm a bit older now, and yeah, it's, you know, just to watch the change and the freedom of people to express their different sexualities and genders and ideas around that, to me, is really important. You know, I really want to support the rainbow community I belong to, and um yeah, I, I think the Aboriginal community has um, also changed, and you know, since you know, I've worked in Aboriginal health for probably twenty five years of my life or more, and um, a bit more than that, or a bit less. Um, and it, yeah, there's been a big shift as well. So, I, you know, I'm happy to be able to have this show now and really pay honour to, you know, the people who've come before me and set, paved the way for us. But, you know, we would just come through Boy, the big festival, and, mm. yeah, there was a, a lot of um, queer content, and there has been in that festival even two years ago. So, um, and to be support, supported as a queer artist um, in some of the big shows, like the institutions like the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, um, I've, I've felt very lucky and... Um, just shows you what if it, with a bit of support yeah an opportunity we can do amazing things yeah yeah for sure um i also read in a chat you had with babak sayed that yeah that things in terms of homophobia are really geographically uneven did you want to talk about that um yeah i think um I think we live in a bit of a bubble in the city, you know, uh, and I work in a LGBT or Thorn Harbour Health and, um, yeah, I think when I've tripped outside of the city um, to visit rural areas, I think there's a lot more homophobia and transphobia and just people struggling a bit more in rural areas. Um, they don't have the same access to supports that we do in the city and um, we just have to be mindful of that, you know, and um, I think, it, you know, things change quicker in the city. There's more of us, there's, yeah, and then, yeah, I just feel like, I don't mean, even in the Aboriginal orgs, you know, there was a real aversion to the word queer and when I went visiting some of the more rural orgs and we sort of, you know, in my part-time job in the LGBTI space, we're trying to tackle some of that by 
you know, making Aboriginal spaces more inclusive as well, you know, Aboriginal health services and get the workers thinking about <coughs> LGBTI issues and inclusion. Um, that, yeah, that's all I'd say. I think sometimes we live in a bit of a bubble and we can think we're in the same thing and then, yeah, I'm, I was just lucky I had someone with me when I went to the country and, yeah, they didn't like the word queer much and they, yeah, they really reacted to it and, um, whereas we really embrace queer in the city. So I think there's still a bit of work to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add or mention? No, I hope people get along to see the show and, um, you know, the Curry Heritage Trust has been really important to me as an Aboriginal person and artist. You know, often as an Aboriginal community in this city, um, we don't have as many ceremonials or gathering places and um, places like the Curry Heritage Trust become a place where I access community where I can go there and um, see... Um, I've always found it really welcoming and it's just really nice to be able to have a show that's um, Aboriginal and queer in a cultural space as well. You know? So I think, feel like it ticks all boxes and people should um, get along there and have a look at the stuff there. There's a beautiful shop and um, you can do cultural tours there of the city as well if you want. So I hope it opens up spaces and... Um, different places to different audiences you know I think the show even though it's about an Aboriginal queer person I think it speaks to lots of different audiences and people will find something in there that speaks to them yeah yeah it does speak to many audiences and I hope um, any listeners that haven't been check check it out the Curry Heritage Trust it's on until July 28th um Thanks for joining me on Queering the Air, Peter. Um, I hope the rest of your day is good. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me. And, um, yeah, uh, thanks, listeners, as well. Um, take care. In 2019, 3CR has the power. Add your support during the annual Radiothon to Power Radical Radio. Radiothon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 039419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2019. Power Radical Radio. I'm joined on the line with Felina Jeffries, who has been involved in sex work organising for over 20 years and is currently the full-time state coordinator of Respect Inc. in Queensland and has written a PhD. And we're going to be talking about um, the life and legacy of Roberta Perkins and touching on some current campaigns. Um, thanks for joining me on 3CR Community Radio, Queering the Air. Oh, thank, you for thank you for having me, Iris. Oh, and just and also, um, Roberta is Roberta Perkins passed away last a year ago, and she was a sociologist, sex worker, rights and trans rights activist. So, where and would you like to start? <laughs> and a friend of yours, yeah. What are your yeah. memories and knowledge? Oh, look, Roberta was such a dear friend and mentor. Um, I feel extremely lucky to have spent so much time with her. Um, mostly during the early noughties and yeah um so well she was larger than life she had a massive personality uh, lots of opinions she was very firm in her belief about rights for sex workers and rights for trans people she was very she was unwavering in that sense and you can see that thread through her work from the early mm. 70s right up until she died it was her lifelong passion, um, and she really lived it with everything that she did. Um, so in that sense, she was an incredibly inspiring person. And to my to younger activists, including myself, and I kind of made it my mission to introduce a lot of younger activists to Roberta, it was very inspiring to know that 
people live their whole life doing activism and being passionate about these issues and it, it never it never wanes and it never lets up. And in some ways that is kind of a surprise because we think, oh, we're going to achieve all these mm. things and then move on. But I think um, reflecting on Roberta's life, we we get that long that picture of longevity of social issues that that don't really resolve. You know, we haven't resolved any of these issues, despite so many amazing activists having made it their lifelong goal from the sixties onwards. Yeah, yeah, um, and one of the reasons um, I'm interested in Roberta is. Yeah, there is so like so much of that activist history isn't a lot of it isn't recorded, but a lot of it's recorded through Roberta's archives, and she was on that that comes up and and made it into the like the treacherous place of university where it's very hard um, to be um, doing community more community orientated research on sex worker lives and trans lives. Um, but maybe we should start um, er, like earlier on in the 70s. Yeah, definitely. So, and it really is the beginning of this story for Roberta. Well, early, late 60s, early 70s, she was doing sex work um, in, in the bar above the Lay Girls' um, big performance space. So there was kind of, it was multi-story, the, um, that bar that Lay Girls performed in, in King's Cross. And there, as well as there being a stage and performance area, there was an upstairs bar that um, uh, trans sex workers would kind of work out of just sitting, like just sitting next to clients and doing little hand jobs under the table and things like that. So Roberta saw a lot of her clients that way, as well as a fair bit of street-based work at that time in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, but really, Roberta, this, the activism story to do with sex work and really the activism story, not just of Roberta's, but for all of us, was in June 1975 when sex workers in Lyon in France, mm-hmm. um, they'd been running a string of protests and occupations, none of which had gained mainstream um, visibility um, but they, in, in June 1975, it was their third big protest, they occupied a church in Lyon, um, which at the t- time was like central city Lyon, like it's right on the water, it's in the middle of everything, it's a big old Gothic church. And um, when they occupied that church, there was a lot of left-wing media attention and a lot of um, kind of high-profile social progressives that w- were giving the protest visibility and it broke through the main, into the mainstream media. So that occupation ended up on front pages, newspapers all over the world and on TV and on radio. Um, and Roberta was part of the group in Sydney who organised a phone-in into the um, occupation in France. And I, Roberta would tell this story to me again and again, and I I loved hearing it every time, how when herself and her little kind of gang of sex workers with opinions in King's Cross in Sydney in 1975 saw that sex workers were protesting and occupying churches in France, um, they were amazed and surprised. I mean, to that point, mm. they really had felt alone like they were the only group in the world that was doing this all on their own. And seeing that and then phoning into the protest, the occupation itself and actually having communication with the sex workers that were in there and talking about their campaign messages and talking about the strategies and talking about what led to this point and... It really opened up that international landscape of the sex worker movement. It brought sex worker organisations from all over the world together because it triggered the very first World Whores Conference that was either in 78 or 79, I think. Um, 
And Roberta was one of the people from Australia, along with Dame Shirley Bates, who went over to that conference and then actually met all of the people that they were talking on the phone with in person. Um, so it triggered something big for Roberta around solidarity. Um, mm. I know that it gave her the courage and the, um, the buoyancy to you know, to double down on her opinions about sex worker rights. You know, we're doing the right thing. Campaigning to end police involvement in sex work is um, is the right thing to be doing. And, and the, the thread of that message was across every uh, Western continent and also across Southeast Asia. Sex workers in Thailand were coming up with... Were, went to the World Holes Congress with the same demands. Sex workers from um, like Latin American countries were at that Congress raising the same things. Um, yeah, so 1975 meant a lot to her and it actually means a lot to all of us because, I mean, those sex workers in Lyon, they weren't necessarily coming from a place of social empowerment. They were coming from a place of being really crushed by the police for many years. And one of the earlier protests, the police pretty much gathered them up and surrounded them and instead of letting them march on the route that had been approved for them to march on, they marched them straight into the detention centres that are underneath the main square of the Leon City and just held everybody overnight for example. Mm. So their protest action, as well as the fact that many of their colleagues were being arrested, sent to jail, having their kids removed and, you know, everything that we know happens today still, um, they also were fighting against what seemed to be a completely impenetrable social stigma that meant not only are the police doing these terrible things, but they're just... that nobody cares and... We protest it and nobody cares, yeah? But yeah. When, the, when people, when it happened and hit that mainstream and, uh, and other sex worker groups were networking together and then finally kind of creating that um, first moment of the modern international movement, um, it, it gave every, everybody, I think, felt more legitimate in what they were demanding, um, it may be that my next door neighbour and the cop down the road hates everything I do, but I know that the sex workers in San Francisco, in Bangkok, in Sydney and in Paris all have the same beliefs as I do. And I'm, and even in the face of intense local stigma and discrimination, I'm going to be that rowdy hooker that is going along to the public meetings, that is writing submissions to government and is just keeping up the fight even without any kind of gaining any... Um, well, not only did Roberta not gain any social status out of it, it really... She, um, she, she, she never really had any social status um, and I think her campaigning meant... Like, it did have a negative long-term impact on her life. She copped mm -hmm. discrimination all the time, um, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, definitely the early days um, from 1975 onwards, she was of the view that this is an international movement, these are relevant social demands, um, and just to keep on keeping on and making people listen. Yeah, and the time of that this is broadcast is June 2nd, which... Um, which is now an International Sex Worker Rights Day. Do you want to just talk a, about how that's evolved from 1975? Yeah, so this is a 2nd of June, International Hordes Day, is the commemoration of the day the sex workers um, occupied the church in Lyon. Um, and they occupied it for 10 days before the police went in in the middle of the night with batons and, and bashed everyone up and, and arrested them. Um, and during that 10 days, they pretty much, it was like international media central. They hosted press conferences every day. They had journalists and researchers and 
people travelled from other countries, journalists travelled from other countries around Europe just to go to the occupation so they could interview the sex workers for their network. So it was a huge um, 10-day event. Um, and yeah, so today on the 2nd of June that we're going to air, it is the day that we celebrate it each year. Um, and a big part of the celebration is remembering the history. Um, Roberta loved this day. She, um, every year, rain or shine, she would go along to the whatever the local event was in Sydney for International Horse Day. She was often a speaker at those events, um, telling that story of what it felt like the first, the very first time she opened the paper and saw the story and just thought, whoa, we've got to get these people on the phone um, and what it was like talking to them and the impact it had on her. Um, and I think it's also a good day to remember, you know, how little we've moved on as well. There's that mm. aspect too. There's a slight sadness to it. Um, police brutality is still, you know, is unchanged very real in sex workers' daily work-wise. Um, this is, you know, in France, conditions are probably worse now than they were in mm. 1975. Um, the anti-trafficking agenda, which has come more to play since the kind of early 90s, um, has really ramped that up to be a full-scale war on whores, um, you know, across the board, the deliberate conflation of trafficking and sex work, um, which gives police a free kick all the time um, and is just so relevant in any every country on the globe, unfortunately. Mm. So, yeah, 2nd of June, we remember um, and we talk about the future as well. Yeah, for, sh yeah, for sure. Um, so now, talk now going back to maybe... The later in the seventies and into the eighties, Roberta getting involved in a number of collectives and being involved in significant history in New South Wales. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Look, I won't. I won't cover in detail the eighties with Roberta. I want to. Can I alert listeners to yeah. the? Um, it's online now. The interview that yeah. Eurydice Aroni um, did with Women on the Line, and Eurydice really talked in detail about what the 80s looked like. Eurydice spent a lot of time with Roberta during the 80s. But to give it a short summary, um, Roberta was instrumental in a number of, well, first of all, the trans collective that set up Tiresias House, now known as the Gender Centre in Sydney, and also the Australian Prostitutes Collective, um, which kind of morphed into SWAP. SWAP New South Wales really carries that history now. Um, and Roberta, I mean, there was a lot of people involved, obviously, with every collective. There's yeah. a lot of kind of, you know, there's so many volunteers behind the scenes. But Roberta was one of the people that was prepared to put her name and face to it. So she was often seen in the public sphere representing those two groups. She was often the one that would go to the meetings with politicians. Her name would be signed on the checks, those kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, Roberta, the 80s was a real high time for her because she was achieving a lot of the things she'd set out to achieve. And as Eurydice explains on the other podcast, soliciting had been decriminalised in New South Wales by this point. So that was decriminalised in 1979. But the 80s also included a whole bunch, basically rich people in King's Cross, um, and res rich residents in King's Cross uh, campaigning to roll back those laws. So by the time by the time decrim was coming in for all sex work in 1995 in New South Wales, the gains from 1979 had all but been uh, rolled back. So um, yeah, so the mid 90s was when decriminalisation was brought in for um, all premises not just public soliciting, but also brothels and private workers. And since then, uh, we haven't had police regulating the industry in New South Wales, except for federal police um, uh, raiding brothels of sex workers from Asian backgrounds and street-based sex workers being policed heavily because of the rollback of the public soliciting laws. 
Do you want to talk about the period leading up to 95 in New South Wales and what Roberta was doing and the, like, how police were in crisis with Royal Commission into corruption and that sort of stuff? Yeah. So the Woods Royal Commission did show what a lot of sex workers had been raising for years. And, you know, Roberta had been putting this, documenting this stuff in writing since about 1983 onwards, that police corruption was... Um, was a central feature of the sex industry in New South Wales. Um, there was a lot of sex workers who risked everything to come forward and tell their stories. And Roberta, as a sociologist, was very well placed to help people to do that and to shape those stories into submissions and to help people um, practice what they were going to say in front of the commission and come forward and give evidence. So there was a lot of political factors at play, but Roberta really did play a role in facilitating sex worker voices in New South Wales to be able to come forward and and make those arguments. Um, And that did eventually lead to the bipartisan approach um, of full decriminalisation in New South Wales. And that was, so that was, you know, both political parties agreed that it had to happen in order to end the police abuse of sex workers. Um, and it has worked, you know. Apart from the street-based sex workers and also the Australian Federal Police efforts against migrant sex workers, as I've mentioned, mm-hmm. um, sex workers in other sectors have gained, have, have gained considerably from decriminalisation. Yeah, definitely. So what about Roberta's contemporaries in this time? Yeah, so um, by this time... Someone that Roberta had been close to in the 70s, uh, Carmen Rupe, um, had, uh, was also had kind of gained a kind of legendary status on the Sydney scene. So like the late 90s and the 2000s, actually Roberta and Carmen were obviously, were, like they were a bit of a kind of tag team at public events, um, speaking out about what the pre-decriminalisation had looked like. Both of them had worked pre-decriminalisation. And so the two of them kind of bounced off each other with the different experiences they had had. Um, While Roberta had been doing sex work during the 60s and 70s, Carmen had also been part of Lay Girls eventually and things like that. So from different perspectives. But I did want to give a shout-out to Carmen. um, And I I do think the two of them um, were quite a formidable force in the kind of, you know, public debates. A um, few times the government in New South Wales has tried to roll back decriminalisation and both of them um, were voices that were really important at the time in the public sphere to argue against that. Um, I mean, the other people I'm thinking of are uh, researchers that she published with at Macquarie University. So... In, after decriminalisation had come in, um, Roberta, by that stage, had been lecturing at Macquarie Uni um, for some time. Roberta had some very close friends at Macquarie Uni in the 90s that she did like co-research with and, and yeah. um, working on projects together. Um, what happened, though, was when Roberta had the opportunity to come up for tenure, um, the department just said in front of everybody um, at a departmental me- meeting that they would never give a trans academic tenure because they would be considered the laughing stock of Australia. Mm. And this um, had a really, really negative impact on Roberta in a number of ways. Well, first of all, it meant that she, her life, she'd never had tenure or financial security to that point, and she, she never had, and she never had that for her entire life. She never had the ongoing financial security of a permanent job, um, and that was purely out of discrimination of her being a trans woman. Um, secondly, however, it did affect her quite deeply because. She felt that she already had a really tough time in Macquarie Uni being accepted by Frances Lovejoy. Frances Lovejoy was an academic at Macquarie Uni that Roberta was very close to. 
Roberta and Francis were very close. Um, and when Roberta didn't get tenure, um, she kind of set up a temporary part-time office um, in Francis's office. Francis did get tenure. Um, and so the two of them did a lot of their work just out of Francis's office. And Francis also kind of, you know, financially helped Roberta a lot over those many years as well. Um, and so, yeah, so there was two aspects to that. Roberta feeling deeply humiliated in front of her um, academic peers and then the lack of financial security, which meant that she, she was reliant on a lot of other people throughout her life in order to be able to continue doing what she was doing. Um, and I think that's... The reason I think this is an important aspect of Roberta's life to raise is because we don't want to romanticise what it was like to be a trans activist then and also we don't want to kind of romanticise what it's like to be a trans or a sex worker activist now. Mm -hmm. Speaking out and doing these things means that it attracts a great deal of criticism and um, discomfort from all kinds of people, people in the policy sphere, your neighbours, anyone that knows you, your family. Um, and, yeah, Roberta had to live with that. She came under targeted attack from the um, Swerf Turf feminists in Melbourne quite a lot mm. as well, um, and it contributed to Roberta choosing not to engage uh, online um, and even though a lot of the, these discussions and organising moved online in um, from about 2003 onwards, she would use the internet sparingly because she was paranoid, and I think the paranoia was you know, quite accurate, that mm. if she built a strong online profile, it would just attract um, more attacks from the um, Swerf Turf crowd in Victoria. And so she did isolate herself in some ways because of that, but it was a self-protective mechanism to avoid... Um, she didn't want people to know where she lived. She didn't... But, you know, they had named her children and stuff publicly, mm -hmm. which... And, you know, just things that were just really um, awful, and she didn't want to give them an opportunity to continue to do that... Um, yeah, so that really characterised her later years as well. Yeah, um, and I guess, yeah, that really touches on the significance of every time sex workers, trans people, like, bring up the issue of surf and, surfs and turfs about how significant that, I that is because they have a material impact on people's lives, um... And they're like in coalitions with the right, with the right on many, in many areas, like pushing for regressive policies that are going to increase violence. Yeah, she didn't engage her online stuff, but she was still doing a lot of stuff um, outside of that. She was still writing that. letters. Yeah, she was still writing letters to politicians. She was still attending meetings where possible. I mean, her and I had flagged the potential of doing, we'd started a book together. Um, yeah, we, there was still a lot of things in the pipeline that she was doing without, um, you know, she wasn't writing blogs or op-eds, but she was still active and doing other things. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and I know she would be really chuffed with a lot of the stuff that's happening at the moment. So there are two major, or three, in fact, major campaigns for decriminalisation of sex work in Australia running at the moment. Um, so just so that the listeners know... Sex work laws are determined on a state and territory basis. So um, campaigns are run on a state and territory basis to lobby those governments to amend the laws and basically remove the criminalisation laws, most of which came into effect around the 1880s. But then there's also since then been a new wave in the 80s and 90s of licensing laws that have also cracked down on sex workers. And so there's three major campaigns being run at the moment, one in Northern Territory, one in South Australia and one in Queensland. And I'm heavily involved in the Queensland campaign and 
listeners might like to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, the, the Decrim Queensland campaign, definitely like you to talk about how that's going and also touch on how anything to do with Roberta influences the way you're doing that campaign and with like, everyone involved in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that's definitely a influence from Roberta's work that can be seen in the current campaigns for decriminalisation is the desire for full decriminalisation for everybody who's a sex worker to be able to be free from police intervention in our lives, Mm. um, not to leave anyone behind. So that includes straight-based sex workers. That includes sex workers living with HIV. It includes migrant sex workers. Um, Roberta was um, very staunch about the removal of policing for sex work across the board. She Mm. was not a compromiser. She was not a person that would go into negotiation about those firmly held beliefs that she had. Beliefs, I would add, grounded in her decades of research on this subject. Um, And the campaigns that are happening across Australia now are definitely a continuation of that line and those those beliefs. Um, So... As a result, the bill that is before South Australian Parliament that is actually um, being voted, that may have been voted on by the time your show goes to air, because it's been voted on this week, um, is a full decriminalisation bill. It decriminalises street-based sex work. It removes police intervention in brothels, private work, um, and it includes the introduction of anti-discrimination protections for sex workers as well. Um, up here in Queensland, we're running. We're not at, at the stage of having an actual bill before Parliament, but we are at this time lobbying for government to sit up and listen. It's now Labor Party policy in Queensland for the, mm. that the full decriminalisation of sex work be considered and brought before Parliament. Um, and we are running the campaign with a collective, so it's a volunteer collective that is a sub committee of respecting which is the funded sex worker organization and it's very much led by sex worker voices the the um you know the research backs us up and our personal experiences are really important as well so we bring all of that um to our campaigning um and i know it's something that roberta would be really chuffed about and we're getting we're going to you know, on some level we're making progress because we've got our voice and we're putting our arguments forward. It's too early to say it's done and dusted. We, You know, the South Australian legislation has been before Parliament numerous times and, and then Parliament's prorogued or it's, it's um, fallen off the bill papers and things like that. Um, but, yeah, the, these things are actually happening. Yes, they are. Um, and what ways you're asking for people to support the campaign? Well, the first thing you can do is go to the RESPECT website, which is respectqld.org.au. And on the website, you can go to the decriminalisation page and check out a bunch of our resources. So we've made some um, different infographics on different topics and then short videos that go with each of those topics. Um, we'd like people to be better informed about what the laws actually mean for sex workers' lives. Currently, it is illegal to implement basic safety strategies for sex work in Queensland. Texting another worker when your client arrives or your client leaves is illegal and it is policed in Queensland. Um, the wording of our advertising is highly regulated and police use the wording of our advertising to get approval to come and do a sting on your workplace. And the first thing they do is grab sex workers' phones and laptops and notebooks to try to prove that you've been communicating with another sex worker and then you and the other sex worker are both can both be charged for participating in the provision of prostitution, which is the um, 1886 law. So, um, yeah, getting informed is definitely number one. Um, And 
Look, number two, if you live in listeners who live in Queensland, get in contact with the campaign. We're always happy for, you know, support and things like that. Um, and getting behind sex worker activism in Victoria. You know, Vixen would like... Vixen is also campaigning for decriminalisation in Victoria. Um, as we know, the seat of Richmond was ostensibly won because sex workers campaigned against the Swerf candidate, Kathleen Moulton. You know, we... Sex workers, the Labor government should recognise that, you know, we're owed this... We're owed as much as this. We are owed to have police removed as our prosecutors. We don't want to be regulated by the police. We don't want to be told that we can't work with other sex workers. We're not even we're not even meant to work at all without a you know registration number. All of these things are incredibly oppressive, um, and they're being policed today. So building up an understanding of that and trying to incorporate it into your worldview, um, the war on whores is real and it affects everyone. It doesn't just affect sex workers. We're talking about what style of police state we're living in mm. today and it does affect everybody. Yes, it does. Um, well, that is so really important. Um, so another thing that you might like to comment on and given you have a background in political science how do you see the federal election results oh gosh but um, you don't have to comment on this one this is just a random no yeah look i think so i'm based in north queensland i'm based in townsville um and uh what's most frightening to me is that it's people who are struggling financially um working-class, welfare-class people who are actively going out and choosing to vote Liberal and One Nation, even though Labor did present a comprehensive set of policies, um, it does seem that people up here in North Queensland really see the Adani coal mine as a silver bullet to solve all the social crises that are going on. Um, and I think the worst thing to come out of this federal election is how the Queensland state government is now looking to um, to support the Adani coal mine. It's definitely the worst thing that's to come out of it. Um, yeah, so and the social issues persist up here uh, in North Queensland, um, and uh, and mainly it's poverty. It's poverty. Lack of access to decent food, lack of access to affordable housing. Um, there's a public housing crisis, um, and we know that everybody's doing it rough. Look, sex workers aren't earning a lot of money at the moment, um, and I mean that's a clear, I think, a clear kind of you know measure that people don't have money to spend. They don't have money to spend um, on on themselves they're you know people are really struggling so i don't have heaps of useful analysis of the (laughs) the latest election but i do think that um i do think that one of the big social issues is people are poor people don't have money and they're looking around for answers and and you know they're being sold a story that the coal mine will will fix it basically and that's a real that's that's very real up here yeah um so is there anything you also wanted to talk about and add that we haven't got to talk about well i just wanted to add that there are events happening all around australia for international horse day in Queensland, we're having a high tea um, with films and 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 socialising for sex workers at all of the four respect offices, and so that's on that's on Monday the third from one o'clock until four o'clock, and you're every ever all sex workers are invited to that. You can check out our website for it, um, and just um, yeah, big supporter of Vixen, big supporter of Scarlet Alliance, and thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for joining me on Querying the Art with 3CR Community Radio. Um, Yeah, thanks for your time, Lena. Thank you, Iris.
In 2019, 3CR has the power. Add your support during the annual Radiothon to Power Radical Radio. Radiothon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 0394198377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2019. Power Radical Radio. I'm joined on the line with Cameron Cox from the Sex Workers Outreach Project, New South Wales. Thanks um, for being on 3CR Community Radio, Querying the Air. We're, we're going to be talking a little bit about the life and legacy of sociologist, sex worker rights and trans rights activist Roberta Perkins. Um, where would you like to start on, on Roberta? Um difficult to know where to start with Roberta. Roberta was a really remarkable person and she trailblazed in a way that is in itself um, remarkable and inspiring at a time when trailblazing in the area of sex work and trans rights was difficult for anyone and Roberta combined those two identities and fought um, almost viciously hard for those two communities um, against great opposition and managed to get the government on side. And not only did she manage to um, start um, what's now the Gender Centre and get funding for trans people when um, they were and people were considered by the general public to be some sort of mutation or abomination that shouldn't even exist. Um, she also managed to get um, sex worker rights moving and to get a government um, inquiry into sex work um, law reform. Yeah, yeah, such an amazing So, yeah, person. really incredible. Um, and especially if you knew the context or... Le- I think you had to live in the context of the times, which I did. Um, you know, sex work was um, criminalised. The, there was a corrupt police force who basically ran sex work and the brothels, and you didn't have any redress if anything happened to you. And if you did say anything, you ended up, as I did, at one stage on the um, floor of Forbes Street Police Station... Um, having your ribs broken by copper's boots. And, you know, that, those sort of things were a real risk. And if you were somebody like Roberta, Roberta was a very tall, large person, and wearing a dress and striding along the streets of King's Cross, she was really, she might as well have had a target um, painted on her back. So she was a very brave person personally and politically. Yeah. Um, does anything about Roberta's life sort of inform how you do the work you're doing today? Um, Elena Jeffries um, she, spoke to me and said that like she was uncompromising and like wouldn't settle for a position that would leave other people behind. Yes, Roberta was completely uncompromising. Um, look, I I didn't know Roberta personally in those days. I my I was a war boy, so I um, stood along the um, sandstone wall that's at the back of the um, Tet College at Darlinghurst near the courts. And a couple of times, Roberta came striding along to ask us boys questions, and we were terrified of her. Like, if, if you saw Roberta coming towards you, you sort of ran, because she was uncompromising. If she wanted an answer to a question, she wouldn't give up until she got it, and she did the same to government. Um it would be the, the amount of emotional energy that goes into that is incredible. We try to be, um, we are, on, yeah, I, I suppose we have taken on that uncompromising um, attitude in the work that we do. For example, decriminalisation, which is one of the things that Roberta 
um, tried to get established here in New South Wales, and we we have almost full decriminalisation. We resist um, strongly to any attempt to roll it back or chip it away, and there have been a lot of those over the years. And, you know, on that, we're uncompromising. We will go down fighting until we are basically, yeah, we, we're dead. You know, it's, it's, it's like the... Um, you know, you'll have to take the um, decriminalisation out of our cold, dead hands if you want it back. Stay tuned for hip sister so, hop. Yeah, that sort of thing is 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 part of her legacy. Um, her legacy is starting sex worker research and proper sex worker research that saw sex workers as real people and not sort of some pathological problem is probably her other great legacy apart from um, SWAP and Gender Centre and the reforms that came out of that. Yeah, do you want to talk just a little bit about SWAP and what you're doing there? SWAP and what? Yeah, sure. I, um, how much time do you have? Oh, and just so, like a shorter SWAP, version. Yeah. SWAP, um, SWAP works as a peer education organisation. Um, peer education is something that sex workers... Um, were instrumental in starting or started to do and didn't actually know that they were doing something that had a name. Okay, it was started by people um, who Roberta had had mentioned and people who were street-based sex workers and it was just street-based sex workers exchanging information with each other and information that helped them do their jobs better and in a way that was more safe. And it became really important when HIV became an issue. And peer education isn't somebody from SWAP standing in front of a group of sex workers and telling them what to do. It's not didactic and it's a level playing field. It's somebody... Peer education is, for us, we go out... To say if we go out to a brothel, we sit around in the ready room and we chat to the other workers because we're workers ourselves. And... When everybody's comfortable, questions may or may not be asked about um, workplace rights, safe sex, um, legal matters, stuff like that, and information's exchanged. And we as outreach workers then file that away, and we also go to conferences and we get um, clinical training as well so that we know our subjects. And... We combine all that with the conversation that we have with people in the next brothel or if they come here in, into SWAP and ask questions, we use all that information. So it's the exchange of information um, by sex workers, um, by other sex workers, and we sort of form a conduit. Um, we do a lot of advocacy, advocacy as well, sorry, yeah. tripping over my words, and... We also um, train other services who may come in contact with sex workers, like health services, um, police, fair work, anybody who um, is more likely than um, just news agents to come in contact with sex workers and who sex workers may be relying on for information so that then sex workers are treated as anybody else and not viewed by that person as um, pathologised. For example, we've had quite a lot of examples of sex workers who've gone to see a counsellor, maybe, like a lot of people do, and when it comes to the question of what do you do for work and you say sex work, they've been told to go away, get another job, and come back then if that problem's still persisting, because mm-hmm. it's more than likely that the sex, work, the sex work is causing that problem. And that's atrocious. Yes. It is atrocious. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, yes. Um, this Sunday is um, International Horse Day, which um, non-sex workers are allowed to call International Sex Workers Day because horse is a reclaimed word as far as we're concerned. And it celebrates a wonderful event that occurred in Lyon on the 2nd of June, 1975. It wasn't so wonderful for the sex workers of Leon because the street-based um, female workers in Leon had been harassed and harassed by the police so much that they'd had enough of it and they marched on the police station. And the Leon police didn't take 
to that too well. In fact, they um, arrested a whole pile of them and um, subjected them to a lot of physical violence. The sex workers who hadn't been arrested then marched on the police station again and the coppers by this time had brought in reinforcements and were really angry and they chased the sex workers across the square and there's a church on the other side of the square called St. Nivea and the priest opened the doors and let the sex workers in and then closed the doors. Now in Europe when you, when that happens, it's called sanctuary and the police weren't able to come in because the priest had closed the doors. The sex workers occupied that church for nearly a month. Sex workers all around the world went on strike um, and sex workers all over France occupied churches. And that act of resistance inspired the modern sex worker movement. And it's a really wonderful thing. There, at one stage, the cops being really angry went to the local equivalent of docks and tried to... Um, have the children of the sex-working women who were in the church taken into care. And when the women of the town of Lyon heard about that, um, women from the town joined the sex workers in the church so that the cops didn't know whose children were who because the non-working women of Lyon looked surprisingly like the working women of Lyon. So it's a great story and it's a wonderful thing. And sex workers actually make pilgrimages to see that church. Yeah. Have you seen the church? No. We tried no. to get there um, last year, my boyfriend and I, when we were in Amsterdam at an international AIDS conference. But we just weren't able to get the time to get from Amsterdam down to Lyon. But next time we're in Europe, we're definitely going. First stop is going to be Lyon. Yeah, I hope you get to make it there. Um, thank you. Yeah, thanks for your time, Cam. Sorry? Um, Thanks for your time. I think that's probably it. Um, yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks for joining me on 3CR Community Radio. Yeah. Um, hope you have a nice day, the rest of your day. That's the end of our program. You can get in contact with us on our Facebook or Twitter by typing in Querying the Air and also at our Gmail, queryingtheair at gmail.com. Stay tuned for Hip Sister Hop and stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.